Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. It is the week of April 6th, 2021 here on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast, where we read the cases so you don't have to. Who's we? That's me. Dan Lage, along with Rich Rockland and Ryan McKean, and every now and again, a special guest. This week, we are back here on the criminal habeas docket with two cases, one a habeas appeal, the other an appeal from a hearing on a motion to correct an illegal sentence. Let's start with the habeas. Your citation for this is AC 43145. The case is George's versus the commissioner of correction, Judge Elgo. On the opinion here, the release date, April 6th, 2021, here are your facts. The petitioner is a Haitian national who moved to Connecticut in 2008 and was a green card holder, which of course makes him a lawful permanent resident, but one who can nonetheless be removed from the United States if found to have committed a serious crime. So the petitioner was involved in a homicide in 2010. He was arrested and charged with reckless manslaughter in the first degree. This, by the way, was over a card game where there was an allegation that someone had been cheating. Any one of my listeners familiar with the movie Rounders can appreciate that being accused of cheating in an intense card game could result in some very serious consequences. In Rounders, Ed Norton had been caught cheating in a card game involving a bunch of police officers. The police officers took Ed Norton outside And they beat him up, which is pretty standard conflict resolution for a cop. But anyway, back to this case, there were numerous pretrial conferences and continuations to let the petitioner think about the plea offer. He talked with his lawyer. He engaged in numerous delays and postponements of the proceedings to continue the case to allow him to consider the deal that was on the table made by the state's attorney's office. Finally, he agreed to accept the plea deal, and on February 8, 2012, the petitioner entered a guilty plea to reckless manslaughter. Now, during that hearing, 
He affirmatively indicated that he had discussed the plea with his lawyer, attorney Bruce Sturman. Attorney Sturman had also indicated on the record that he had discussions involving the immigration consequences of this plea. He told the court that he was concerned that a reckless manslaughter in the first degree conviction was a very serious one in terms of his immigration concerns. And he indicated to the court that he had discussed this with his client and that he was that his client was in understanding of the risk of deportation. And it was even more than a risk, according to Attorney Sturman. It was almost certain. So we fast forward now to a few months later, April 12th, 2012. The petitioner is sentenced on that day. He gets a little over 12 years, seven years of special parole. Ultimately, he files a pro se petition for a writ of habeas corpus. It's amended on November 7th, 2018. In it, among other things, he alleged that Attorney Sturman's representation was ineffective, specifically that Attorney Sturman failed to advise the petitioner of the likelihood of his deportation following his plea. Now, we see this often in habeas cases. Non-citizens, whether it's buyer's remorse or some other late-stage consideration, think that the habeas process will save them from removal or a successful habeas would result in granting them the opportunity to re-enter following their removal from the country. So in this case, there was a trial and the habeas court concluded that Mr. Georges failed to demonstrate deficient performance, specifically that attorney Sturman did not advise the petitioner of the likelihood of his deportation. So the, the writ was denied, petition for certification to appeal was granted And that brings us to Judge Elgo in the appellate court. The standard of review here is, of course, a mixed question of law and fact. The Strickland principle is very well known. Two prongs, deficient performance and prejudice. The court can rule on either prong here on appeal. And the petitioner claims that the court improperly concluded that the petitioner did not establish that Sturman provided ineffective assistance, not because Sturman didn't tell him that his his deportation was likely or almost certain. No, he claims ineffective assistance because attorney Sturman did not tell him that his deportation was certain as a result of his plea for reckless manslaughter in the first degree. So the court swiftly disposes of this claim, holding that although deportation may have been very likely, it was not certain and that Sturman adequately advised the petitioner of that. In fact, the lawyer, Attorney Sturman, said to the court during the plea canvas that he was expecting the worst and that he told his client that, that as a result of this plea to manslaughter in the first degree, it was almost certain that Mr. Georges would be removed from the country. So why is that? Well, the court here engages in some analysis as to under federal law, why this case is not a certainty. The court finds that it wasn't this this charge here, manslaughter in the first degree, is not necessarily an aggravated felony under the federal immigration statute, nor is it an offense involving a controlled substance. Instead, the court accepts the petitioner's representation that this falls under the moral turpitude provision under federal law. And that in and of itself makes this case ambiguous. 
And so if this is a case involving moral turpitude, is not something that the appellate court is going to hold Sturman uh, accountable for vis-a-vis explaining to the client the certainty or not of his deportation as a result. The court says that whether this crime constitutes a moral turpitude crime is not a question that they are being called on to resolve, but in any event, whether a crime is a moral turpitude crime under the removal statute in the United States Code is in and of itself a baffling proposition. It's not straightforward. It is not succinct. And it was not so in 2012 at the time of Mr. George's hearing. And because of this, Attorney Sturman could have relied on practice guides available to him at the time, such as the Brief Guide to Representing Non-Citizen Criminal Defendants in Connecticut, which Attorney Sturman said that he reviewed, a guide which stated that deportation could depend on certain circumstances and that non-citizens convicted of crimes involving moral turpitude may be eligible for relief from deportation. In light of this, and because of the advice that he gave to the petitioner of the great likelihood of his deportation, the court held that Sturman properly advised the petitioner of his immigration consequences, and this case is closed. We move on to our next case on the docket, State versus Love, AC43484. Judge Alexander, on this opinion, released April 6th, 2021. Here are your facts. On November 9th, 2017, defendant Love pleaded guilty to assault in the first degree and carrying a pistol without a permit. He did so under the Alfred Doctrine. If you haven't seen the documentary Staircase on Netflix, tune in and watch. There's a really cool 10 or 15 minutes where the subject of the documentary has a meeting with his lawyer where they talk about the Alfred Doctrine. It's fascinating. A couple months later, January 31st, 2018, the court imposed the sentence on Mr. Love, eight years of incarceration followed by 10 years of special parole. On June 20th, 2019, 15 months later, the defendant, representing himself, filed a motion to correct an illegal sentence claiming that the sentencing court was not provided with accurate information. He wasn't given the opportunity to even look at his pre-sentence investigation report to connect to correct the mistakes that were in there and that there was a conflict of interest between his trial counsel and the prosecutor. In his motion, he referenced generally State versus Cassiano. On June 30th, 2019, the court denied the motion to correct the illegal sentence without conducting a hearing, in part because the defendant had a pending habeas at the time. On appeal, the defendant argues that the court improperly denied his motion to correct an illegal sentence because it did not appoint counsel to determine whether there was a sound basis for his motion, which is required by State versus Cassiano under Connecticut General Statute 51-296, subsection A. In response, the state of Connecticut argues that, well, under Cassiano, the right to appointed counsel is not a self-executing right, also contending that the general reference that the defendant made in his motion to Cassiano was not an affirmative request for counsel. So, Judge Alexander, in her opinion, provides us with a bit of legal background on the Cassiano line of cases, starting with a motion to correct an illegal sentence itself. 
The judicial authority may at any time correct an illegal sentence, of course. It is an exception to the general rule that once a defendant's sentence has been executed, the authority of the sentencing court to modify that sentence terminates. She then goes on to Cassiano itself, 282 Connecticut 614 in Cassiano. The Supreme Court determined that in connection with a motion to correct an illegal sentence, pursuant to the practice book 43-22, a defendant has a right to the appointment of counsel for the purpose of determining whether the defendant who wishes to file such a motion has a sound basis for doing so. Judge Alexander then moves on to State versus Francis, 322 Connecticut 259. In that case, it concluded, did the Connecticut Supreme Court, that it was harmful error for a trial court to fail to appoint counsel to represent the defendant in a motion to correct an illegal sentence, even for the limited purpose of determining whether a sound basis exists for the motion to be filed. Moving on, State versus White, 182 Connecticut Appellate 656 in 2018 where the court defined the conflict that exists for appointed counsel. Because on the one hand, they have to play the role of advocate, right? But on the other hand, they have a duty of candor to the court in presenting an honest assessment of whether or not a sound basis exists for the motion. And so with that background in mind, nicely outlined by Judge Alexander, we get to the facts in this case. So Mr. Love and his motion generally cites State versus Cassiano. The state argues that that general cite, which doesn't even have a citation to it, is too vague to be considered an affirmative request for a lawyer. Now, in a footnote here, probably the funniest part of this case, in a footnote, Judge Alexander reveals that the state also contended that since there was no citation, that since Love just said this motion is pursuant to State versus Cassiano without a citation, that there's no way that this court could have been put on notice that the defendant meant the Cassiano that we all know. He could have meant one of the other 300 Cassiano cases in connection with his motion to correct an illegal sentence. I, I don't know about you, but I was confused. This whole time, I didn't know if he was talking about State versus Cassiano, the well-known prosecutorial misconduct case, or State versus Cassiano, the seminal jury instruction case. I mean, come on, you gotta be kidding me. So Judge Alexander quickly dispenses with that argument, saying that the shorthand Cassiano is pretty well known amongst practitioners in Connecticut, and that the defendant in this case, specifically referring to State versus Cassiano in a motion to correct an illegal sentence, is sufficient enough of a reference to constitute an affirmative request for counsel. And so for the trial court to have rejected this and, and to do so without a hearing was reversible error. In this case, was reversed and remanded for further proceedings consistent with the Cassiano case. And so Mr. Love will hopefully get his shot on his motion to correct his legal sentence. But that does it for me this week. Coming up next, attorney Ryan McKean will be discussing our favorite conspiracy theorist. No, it's not Norm Pattis, but it's close. It's Alex Jones. You might have seen Alex Jones hanging around New Haven recently. Anyway, Alex Jones recently lost an appeal at the Connecticut Supreme Court in connection with the defamation lawsuit brought by relatives of some of the victims of the Sandy Hook tragedy. So stay tuned. Ryan McKean's up next to tell you all about it. Next up, injury law cases. 
If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi, it's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here. And this week we're going to go a little bit outside the realm of personal injury law. All that, not all that far outside, but just a little bit. And this is the case of Lafferty versus Jones. It is Supreme Court case number 20327. It was decided by, the opinion was by Chief Justice Robinson. And this case, the plaintiffs in the case are first responders and family members of those killed in the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. The defendants are Alex Jones and several of his corporate entities. And this is Alex Jones of InfoWars fame um, and a a well-known conspiracy theorist on his radio show, uh, Jones shared conspiracy theories regarding the Sandy Hook shooting, causing the plaintiffs to file suit against him for invasion of privacy, defamation, intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress, civil conspiracy, and claimed violations under the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act. In November of 2018, the defendants filed special motions to dismiss pursuant to the anti-slap statute connecticut general statute 52-196 a subsection b plaintiffs then moved for limited discovery relevant to the special motion to dismiss the defendants opposed claiming that discovery was too broad but the court ultimately granted the request of the plaintiff's motion for limited discovery The trial court ordered the defendants to produce their discovery compliance by February 23, 2019. The defendants failed to meet the deadline, but were granted a motion for extension of time until March 20, 2019. Two days before the March 20, 2019 deadline, the defendants filed another motion for an extension of time. The court denied, noting the defendants' disregard of court-ordered deadlines. Plaintiffs then moved for sanctions on March 20, 2019, arguing that the court should impose sanctions for discovery violation deadlines. On April 10, 2010, the trial court ruled that although the defendants did not respond to every discovery request, they were in substantial compliance with the court's discovery orders, which is sufficient to allow them to pursue the special motion to dismiss. In late May of 2019, the plaintiffs brought additional discovery issues before the court, requesting responsive marketing data from Google Analytics and a complete search of Jones's cell phone. The court approved, again warning the defendants to comply with the deadlines. On June 14, 2019, Jones and his attorney appeared on his radio show to discuss the pending case, at which time Jones alleged that the attorney for the plaintiffs, Christopher Maddy, 
had embedded child pornography in Jones's emails. Among a long list of other things stated during the broadcast, Jones harassed and threatened Maddie, declaring war on him and offering a million dollars for Maddie's quote-unquote head on a pike. On June 17, 2019, the plaintiffs filed motions asking the court to review the broadcast. Plaintiffs requested an expedited briefing schedule concerning what orders must be issued pursuant to the broadcast. On June 18, 2019, the parties argued whether or not the court should consider other sanctions, uh, should consider should order sanctions as a result of the broadcast. After which, the trial court imposed sanctions against the defendants and revoked their opportunity to pursue the merits of their special motions to dismiss. This expedited public in- this expedited public interest appeal followed. Now, the defendants argued that the trial court's ruling is befriend of any analysis of the First Amendment and that the court's inherent authority is not an adequate ground to claim to sanction them based upon Jones's free speech. Furthermore, they contend that because Jones's broadcast was not a true threat and did not incite violence and did not constitute fighting words, the trial court sanction was impermissible under the First Amendment. Additionally, they urged that the sanctions ordered in relation to discovery violations were also impermissible. Plaintiffs argued in response that the sanctions were a permissible exercise of the court's authority to sanction bad faith litigation, which includes harassment and intimidation of opposing counsel. Further, they argued that the broadcast was not protected was not protected because it was a true threat. Now, the standard of review here that the court applied is whether the trial court sanctions constitute an impermissible restriction on the defendant's speech in this context requires the court to apply a de novo standard of review, which makes this inquiry a question of law over which this court's review is plenary. The court must examine the statements at issue, the circumstances under which they were made, and determine whether they are of a character and that principles of the First Amendment protected. In First Amendment cases, the United States Supreme Court has repeatedly held that the appellate court has an obligation to make an independent examination of the whole record to ensure that the judgment did not improperly intrude on a field of free free expression. Now, the standard of review for free speech, the court um, asked whether judicial sanctions imposed for extrajudicial statements made by a party pending litigation run afoul of the First Amendment presents a question of first impression in Connecticut. For guidance, the court used a test adopted by the U.S. Supreme Court in Bridges versus California, where they considered whether the speech in question presented a clear and present danger. The opinion goes into a deep and lengthy analysis of the clear and present danger test, how it has been criticized, and how it has been applied differently in various cases. But the court nonetheless decides to use it as a guideline in the present case because the Supreme Court has not yet clearly supplanted this test. However, the court does refine the test, concluding that if extrajudicial speech by a party to litigation poses an imminent and likely threat to the administration of judicial proceedings at issue, a court may sanction a party for that speech. Accordingly, the court 
had to determine what factors affect whether extrajudicial speech constitutes or threatens the administration of justice. The court considered the factors used in Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada. One is the identity of the speaker, and two is the timing of the speech. If a speaker is a party to the litigation, the government's interest in ensuring a fair administration of justice is heightened, especially if the trial involves a criminal defendant. Moreover, restrictions on a litigant's speech are more permissible than speech made by someone outside of litigation. The court acknowledges that Jones's position as a civil defendant, as distinguishable from a civil plaintiff, that affirmatively, affirmatively requests the presence of the court. Accordingly, it concluded that Jones's statements should be afforded the most rigorous and searching review of any infringement of his First Amendment rights. The court recognized that while litigants do not surrender their First Amendment rights at the courthouse door, those rights may be subordinated to other interests that arise in this setting. Additionally, the timing and nature of the speech are more likely to interfere with the administration of justice if the speech is calculated to intimidate or threaten participants. Therefore, the parties and attorneys who engage in harassment of their opponents will not be protected by the First Amendment. The court's analysis also relies on case law from other appellate courts that applied clear and present danger standard. Looking to cases where the speech did constitute a clear and present danger to the administration of justice is justice in cases where it did not. The court notes the stark contrast between Jones's speech and the speech that did not constitute a threat to the administration of justice. The trial court did not expressly consider whether the speech posed an imminent and likely threat to the administration of justice in ruling on its motion for sanctions. Instead, the trial court's determination was founded in its inherent authority to address out-of-court misconduct and its obligations to ensure the integrity of judicial process. Nevertheless, the trial court's findings led to sanctions that are consistent with the aforementioned standard. The trial court found that Jones accused opposing counsel of a felony, planting child pornography, and two, used threatening language towards opposing counsel through violent rhetoric. Three, harassed and intimidated opposing counsel, calling him names and declaring war against him. Jones's broadcast created a hostile atmosphere that could discourage individuals from participating in litigation and was permissibly censured due to the threat it posed and its genuine potential to influence fairness of proceedings. The court rejects Jones's argument that there is no bar barrier to a litigant, especially a radio broadcaster, from speaking freely about pending litigation. The court recognizes the importance of a robust comment on the judicial process through media and acknowledges that outside of litigation, Jones's speech may be protected. However, because Jones is a party in the litigation, his speech could have a greater opportunity to incentivize to influence the outcome of the case. After broadcast, after Jones' broadcast speech where he declared war against plaintiff's counsel and promoted a million-dollar bounty on plaintiff's counsel, additional threats were made targeting those involved in the case. The court finds that one who places a bounty on opposing county's head, figuratively or not, undeniably interferes with the judicial proceeding. The threats were directed to inciting or producing a threat to the administration of justice that is both imminent and likely to materialize. Lastly, the court considered whether the state's interest may be served in a manner 
and another manner, and whether the sanctions imposed are narrowly tailored to the state's interest in ensuring a fair judicial process, the court appropriately dealt with the issues in a proportional sanction that was more measured than the individual punishments of the civil or criminal contempt have been upheld for similar conduct. The court selected a lower penalty than the plaintiffs had suggested. The court ended up the court held the Supreme that the trial court did not violate Jones's First Amendment rights when it imposed sanctions based on his broadcast, which presented an imminent and likely threat to the administration of justice. And the second component of this case is the sanctions for discovery abuses. And discovery abuses, uh, you know, arise, or discovery arguments arise a lot in personal injury litigation. And the defendants argued that the trial court abused its discretion in fashioning sanctions for discovery noncompliance, in particular taking issue with the harshness of the sanctions imposed. The plaintiffs argued that the sanctions are proportional because the defendant's violations were willful, deliberate, and bad faith. The standard of review that the court applied was the trial court's power to sanction stems from its inherent powers and rules of practice. In reviewing the portion of the sanctions based upon the violation of discovery orders, the court will consider three factors. One, whether the order was reasonably clear. Two, whether the record establishes that the valid order was violated. And three, whether the sanction was proportional to the violation. The tr in this case, in the analysis portion, the trial court observed that during the motions for sanctions that the defendant's discovery had been marked with obfuscation and delay. Specifically, the defendants failed to produce adequate Google Analytics information in a complete search of Jones's cell phone, and the defendants disregarded discovery deadlines multiple times and continuously objected to discovery by failure to produce, which was within their purview to obtain, or their power to obtain. It is undisputed that the trial court's orders were reasonably clear and that the defendants violated four of them. The defendants focused their arguments on the harshness of the sanctions, and determining whether the sanctions were imposed were proportional, the court considered three factors. One, the cause of the party's failure to respond, specifically whether or not it was due to bad faith. Two, the degree of the prejudice suffered, which may depend on the importance of misinformation requested. And three, which of the available sanctions would be, opposed, uh, would be appropriate in a similar situation. The court also considered how Jones's broadcast impacted the trial court's decision in sanctioning the defendants for their bad faith litigation processes. Assessing proportionality required the court to consider the totality of the circumstances and the nature of the conduct itself. The defendants repeatedly ignored court deadlines, continued to challenge the merits of discovery, and willfully disregarded the court's orders. The disregard was only exacerbated by Jones's conduct on his broadcast and because his statements were one part of the whole picture of bad faith, lit bad faith litigation misconduct. The trial court's reliance on the broadcast as rationale for sanctions was appropriate in this context. The court notes that their discovery noncompliance could have been due to a change in counsel, but acknowledges that even under the defendant's original counsel, the requested documents were still far from ready for presentation. The court then considered the importance of discovery undisclosed discovery material, the effect of the information, and whether the information was available through 
other means to determine whether the opposing party was prejudiced by the failure to produce. The record supports the determination that the plaintiffs were prejudiced by the defendant's noncompliance because they were unable to access information that could use assist them in providing probable cause that they would succeed on the merits of their complaints. Finally, the court considered the proportionality of the sanctions imposed. When considering uh, considering violations, a pattern of willfulness on the part of the defendants could reasonably be found. And this willfulness, in addition to the defendants' harassment and intimidation, created a whole spectrum of bad faith misconduct. As is often the case, the whole of abusive action is greater than the sum of parts, and the trial court can evaluate to determine whether small incremental blows to the integrity of the trial add up to something that requires sanctioning. The sanctions imposed on the defendants, re- on the defendants revoked their statutory benefit to pursuing special motions to dismiss under 52-196A, which further penalized them by rescinding a stay of the full discovery process. However, this was a measured sanction as compared to the defendant's noncompliance with discovery and abuse of the very benefit they sought to utilize. Moreover, the sanctions did not preclude the defendants from having the merits of their case adjudicated in a conventional manner, such as by summary judgment or trial. The defendant's central argument for excusing their noncompliance was that the discovery was overbroad and the sanctions therefore not appropriate. According to the defendant's discovery rule under 52-196A is only allowed as an exception to the rule that discovery is to be stayed pending a decision of a special motion to dismiss, and when allowed, it must be limited. The court notes, however, that the defendants were still required to comply with court orders. Moreover, nothing in the anti-slap statute limits the trial court's discretion to order limited relevant discovery uh, to the special motion to dismiss beyond the good cause standard outlined by statute. As such, the court did not find that the legislative silence by imposing broad restrictions on the trial court's discretion to determine uh, the good cause. The court held that the defendant's claims that the discovery was improperly uh, granted under anti-slap statute does not excuse their failure to comply with court orders, and the trial court did not abuse its discretion. And finally, uh, there are arguments around the notice and opportunity to respond to sanctions. They, uh, the defendants alleged that the trial court ordered sanctions in an overly summary process because the plaintiffs filed their motion to review the broadcast and indicated that they would move for relief on an expedited basis. And the next day, the court ruled on the merits of the plaintiff's motion for sanctions without any briefing by the defendants, and they were handed a copy of a recent judicial decision that the court considered instructive. The plaintiffs argued that the defendants were afforded sufficient due process because they had been repeatedly warned by the trial court may revoke their opportunity to pursue special motions to dismiss. Plaintiffs also point to the fact that on June 17, 2019, the court informed the defendants that they should be prepared to discuss the broadcast, and the defendants never indicated that they needed additional time to prepare. And the standard of review that the court applied was whether the defendant was deprived of his due process rights is a question of law to which the court has plenary review. In light of the record, the court concludes that the court concluded that the defendants had adequate notice 
to apprise them of the possibility of sanctions entering as a result of their conduct. The plaintiffs filed a motion seeking sanctions several months earlier, and the trial court discussed the possibility of sanctioning the defendants on several occasions and reissued a warning on June 10, 2019. Moreover, the day... The day before the hearing, the plaintiffs indicated that they were going to seek interim relief, and the court issued an order that would address the relief at the broadcast hearing. Because of the trial court's countless warnings, the defendants cannot reasonably contest that they were not adequately notified of the possibility of sanctions. Furthermore, the trial court held the hearing, at which time the arguments on the issue at no point did the defendants request additional time, so the court accordingly held that the defendants were granted meaningful opportunity to be heard, and due process was served here. In conclusion, the defendant's First Amendment rights were not violated by the sanctions granted in relation to the broadcast because of Jones's repeatedly th repeated threats of bodily harm amounted to an imminent threat to the administration of justice. Further, the sanctions the court granted against the defendants were appropriate in relation to their discovery, noncompliance, and the broadcast. So you have a lot to unpack in that uh, decision um, you know, especially regarding, you know, discovery, sanctions, anti-slap, um, and, uh, you know, conduct of parties against uh, opposing counsel. So this litigation is likely to continue, uh, but this opinion is likely to be cited uh, many times over in any case really involving uh, media comments or comments to the media by a party uh, concerning uh, litigation. So if anybody is looking to talk to the press about a case, they should probably consider reading uh, this case. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hi, this is Rich Rockland. Uh, there are no new cases this week, but as soon as there are new cases, we'll have them up and reviewed and ready to go. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating, you can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruan Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.